This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, you'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's going to look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and, and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home. What does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You've got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have? Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motor home and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> and travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, 
information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? By the way, that's a great conversation to have whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on, after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? You've got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning? Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that, you know, your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple? 
as an individual as well. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are, are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, each, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues. And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. Folks, that's the Coach's Corner. I highly challenge you, suggest that you get out there, have the conversation. And you know what? You don't need to wait for retirement. Legacy, distribution, time, resources. Four conversations, one relationship. That's the Coach's Corner. Thanks for joining us, my friends. We're going to take a break. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, being fearful is a part of everyday life, from childhood fears of the dark or the monster under the bed, 
or uh, to adulthood where we have fears of economic doom, terrorist attacks. We live in a world surrounded by fear. But what do Americans truly fear most? And how do we act based on these fears? Joining us today, uh, we have Dr. L. Edward Day, one of the researchers out of Chapman University in Orange County, California, where uh, they recently completed its second annual Chapman University Survey of American Fears. And the survey asked participants about 88 fears across a broad range of categories, and they've come up with a lot of interesting learnings. Uh, Dr. Ed Day, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you, and thanks for getting up so early. And we know that you were, yeah. we were going to have another one of your co-authors on that was back east, but he threw you a curveball, apparently. Yeah, he came down with the flu yesterday. Ugh. Either that or he wanted to sleep in. He was afraid. I have a feeling, Ed, he was afraid. <laughs> this is great, no, but I'm glad to have you. And and especially because this study, really, it's it's perfect timing for us because terrorist attacks, major fears. The government's ability to protect us could be causing fears. In your study, though, you went through and identified the top 10 fears that Americans uh, that, that, that we're suffering with. What are those top 10 fears? Yeah, the, uh, what surprised us was, was uh, in the second wave that corruption of government officials ranked as the top fear uh, wow. with, with more than half. And it was the only one where more than half of uh, uh, the population said that they were it was something they were afraid of. Interesting. Um, is, I mean, yeah, is that I mean, a is that a big deal? I mean, I mean, because well, we are in a political you know era and all of a sudden right. everyone's talking politics, but. But to have our number one fear be corruption of government officials seems, wow, out there. Yeah, I think so, too. That one that one really caught us off guard. Uh, um, I, it, it, well, in the long run, I think it, it, it would be a danger for our society. Yeah, absolutely. We have to believe in our system. Uh, yeah. We have to believe in our system for it to work. Uh, I think it is, though, also inflated um, – by the fact that we are in a political season. And yeah. not only in a political season, we're in one where everybody is running against the government. And so the big, you know, on the news every night, we hear uh, people who want to be our leaders talking about how crummy our government right. system is. And, uh, uh, yeah, that is having an effect. Isn't that and interesting? Because that, that's why, I mean, really, that shows you really maybe how accurate this survey is because you're, it, it's, it's very much time to what's going on in the news. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, and and we expect now, now that this has popped up here, it will probably stay as the top fear until we're through the entire election mm. cycle. So on that one, we're really excited to look maybe two or three years down the road. And are we less concerned with that once the presidential election is over? That's interesting, because I guess that does. That tells us how we try to get people elected is fear mongering, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, that, that that certainly seems to be the way we're going this time. Yeah, for sure. And And cyber terrorism was number two. Cyber terrorism was number two, and, and followed uh, very closely by uh, corporate tracking of personal information. So hmm. the, the the cyber and and the whole digital world that we're living in now, people are people are concerned about that. Wow! So and gov- government and then cyber fears; those kind of are the top three or four. And then we finally get to terrorist attacks. At number four, yes, which is. It ranks right in there. I mean, it's uh, 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 between terrorist attacks and cyber terrorism. It's all between, say, 44 and 45 percent of the population. So hmm. Very close. Wow. And then following right after that is the government tracking of personal information. Back so, to kind and, of the cyber uh, info. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three of the top five are related to uh, uh, um, our privacy or security online, as opposed to in real life. Hmm. And and then it's then you get into bio warfare, which is I uh-huh. guess kind of back to terrorism, identity theft, back to privacy. And then more financial issues. So it surprises me because when I work with couples, for example, the number one thing they argue about seems to be money. And economic issues, economic collapse is the eighth biggest fear of Americans. It is. But but if you look at them, the, everything that comes before that, you know, from the corruption of government officials uh, down through biowarfare, the thing that, 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 that all these things have in common is that they're, they're things where, where – we depend on it. We do depend on government. We do depend on our uh, electronic cyber life. But there are also things that we have very little control over. Okay. Um, we, we can't do much about government uh, uh, corruption. At least we don't think we can. Or, or terrorism is something that seems totally out of our control. It's somebody else's decision on whether this will happen to us. Uh, so really, the, the, the first thing on, on fears where people can do something about is, is uh, uh, the money, right? You know, in the night. Ooh, are you still there, Ed? Ed, we, we lost Ed's line. Uh, but out of money in the- oh, there you go, Ed. Now I can hear you. Go ahead. We lost you for a minute, Ed. So, so really, yeah. you were saying that it's uh, when we have a dependency on something like the government protection you know, attacks, safety, security, but we don't have control over it, it probably increases our fear. Yes, I think so. I think that's it. Uh, uh, it's the things that we can't do anything about that, tend to, that hmm. tend to affect us. I think that's related to things like, you know, which didn't rank as high, but which still scares people, say fear of flying. Yeah. Uh, you're up there in that tube, and, and you're not the person controlling it. And I think, you know, that's what aggravates a fear like that as well. That's so really one of the things um, I'm assuming you're trying to get at with the study there at Chapman is is not just what the fears are generally, but but what what are driving the fears? Is that part of your study? Yeah, we do want to sort that out as uh, as time goes on. Um, you know, with the first couple of ways, we did want to establish the methodology and we did want to get a good look at uh, uh, what the top fears are. Uh, we did spend a little bit more time uh, on this wave looking at how people act out of fear. And in the, the papers that we're working on, it's, it's how that fear may affect our daily behavior. Because, for example, one thing that we heard about um, on cyber uh, or on Black Friday, the more and more people were applying for gun, you know, to gun purchases than at any time in the history of, uh, of I guess, Guns and gun purchasing. And all of a sudden, it's interesting, too. So if our fears are going up with terrorist attacks, uh, hearing, you know, literally every day now, every news cycle, we have more and more about terror. uh, It may be then having people act out of their fear and now they're out buying guns. Yeah, we asked people if they had ever bought guns because they were afraid, and 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 ten percent, ten and a half percent of of the sample said yes, they had. Hmm. You know, most people are buying guns because they hunt or for sports yeah. purposes or things like that. But uh, among those people who buy guns, it's the fear that's driving at least ten percent of uh, the purchases. Did what else did you learn about acting out of fear? I mean, what else is what else are you seeing as signs, or what else is happening when people? What do they do with their fear? Um, well, we noticed 
in, in the questions where we simply asked, have you ever done this because you were afraid, uh, the top one there was voting for a particular candidate, again, taking us back to government. But huh. more than one out of five people uh, uh, in the sample, there was 22.6%, said they had voted for a particular candidate out of fear. And that's where we start to see where uh, uh, this fear of corruption of, of government officials can really affect our nation. Wow. Uh, a democracy depends on rational debate and making good choices. That's the principle behind it. Uh, if we're voting out of fear rather than out of what we believe would be uh, uh, the best thing for the country, I think I think that does threaten us. It's interesting. And again, you you won't have the data on this, but there's still so many people scratching their heads trying to figure out the Trump effect. But yeah. a lot of that could very much just be fear-based. He talks very cleanly and very clearly about fear and fear issues. And if if 20 percent of people act have, have acted out of fear, in, especially in, I guess, electing somebody uh, or voting for somebody, it's it really is very timely information to add to the discussion. Yeah, I think so. And certainly his hot button topics in his speeches, uh, uh, you know, immigrants and and talking about registering people because of their religious beliefs or something. That's definitely fear driven. And and it definitely is a fear reaction. Hmm. Did when you look at this, uh, this the activity of fear, I mean, it is a major motivator. And yet some of the things I know that came out of your research, like even like ghosts, um, do people believe in ghosts? There was a really cool example of if you believe in ghosts, you probably meet this criteria. You probably meet this this uh, this demographic or these demographics. Is some of this just situational? Is some of this just almost is it more likely to happen in one part of the country than another part of the country? Or is this America overall? Uh, well, the sample is is uh, uh, it's a weighted random sample of Americans uh, that that's made to match the census, so it should apply to people uh, uh, you know across the whole nation. But region of the country does matter for things like paranormal beliefs, and if you're from the South, uh, you're more likely to have paranormal beliefs. Hmm. Uh, people uh, who are Republican are actually more likely to have paranormal beliefs. Interesting. Um, yeah, people who attend church regularly are more likely to have paranormal beliefs. Hmm. Um, uh, people who have lower levels of education, females, people who are unmarried, um, uh, people who are non-white, uh, all tend to have significantly greater paranormal beliefs. Isn't that interesting? And, and fears, really, I guess, fears of paranormal events. Yeah, not not everything we asked about the paranormal is related to fear. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things we asked about was, do you believe in angels? Uh, hmm. uh, treating that as sort of a, a paranormal belief. Um, so it's not all negative. Yeah. Uh, uh, some people, their paranormal beliefs aren't motivated by fear as much as they are by uh, a search for security. Right. I mean, that really is seems like what we're constantly doing on this earth is trying to find some way to secure mm-hmm. our paradigm, our view of life. Uh, let's do this. We're speaking with Dr. Ed Day, and uh, he's from Chapman University and talking about the survey of American fears that they, they just completed the second year of and uh, just picking his brain, learning about fears, what Americans are afraid of. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. I really want to find out how this, uh, this year's survey compares to their last survey. Have things changed much? Have our fears moved in a different direction? Stick with us, folks. Uh, Understanding your fears when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we are talking about uh, organizational learning. Do you feel like your organization, you know, it's year end, so you got to have your Christmas party, but it might also be a great time to, to do some learning. Like, what has happened to us this year? Are we heading in the right direction? What are the best practices? A lot of information sometimes might be just lost. And, you know, we have this compelling need to keep producing, so a lot of us never actually figure out what we just went through, what we learned. And our, our guest today is uh, Dr. Bradley Stotts. He is a professor at the University of North Carolina, and uh, he, he examines how organizations can improve their operational performance in order to build a generative competitive advantage. He also has written, an, I think, a wonderful article. If you own a business, if you are... If you want to improve the results you're getting in your organization, you got to go look it up in Harvard Business Review, Why Organizations Don't Learn. It's, a, it's an article that Dr. Bradley Stotts co-authored with Francesca Gino, and um, just great work that uh, it's very well-cited and researched, powerful tool. Dr. Stotts, thanks again for being with us. Absolutely, Matt. Love being on the show. Talk about um, – okay, so what can I do, right? So I'm just the average Joe, just the guy that goes to work, maybe middle yep. manager. What I, what am I supposed to do to make sure my area of, of concern is actually growing? We're learning. Absolutely. So I think that uh, what we try to do in the article is with each of the different biases um, – take on a, a, a tact uh, in that direction. So um, you were talking about uh, you know, how it's the end of the year and yeah. how we should be thinking about learning. Uh, and so you know, around the bias to action, one of the things we bring up is the need for reflection. And so what's great about this is it's really simple to do, uh, but it's something that we often prefer not to, right? We right. Uh, did a study uh, where we gave people a choice. Do you act? Uh, do you reflect? And what we find is most of them want to jump right into the task. But if we could actually take that time to step back, uh, we see those reflectors do better. Um, we followed that up with some broader research uh, with a big organization where we randomly assigned, so we treated one group that had to just do the activity and then another group that spent 15 minutes each day reflecting. At the end of the day, at the end of some training, um, spend 15 minutes, what are the two things that you learned? Hmm. Um, and what was remarkable is at the end of a couple of weeks there, uh, they ended up taking uh, an important exam, so these were technical training um, experts at this company. And those that spent that 15 minutes reflecting um, actually performed dramatically better. Um, and so one thing to think about here at the end of the year, um, and hopefully making it a practice going forward, is you know, taking just a few minutes each day Take five minutes um, and think, you know, what happened today? Um, what, should, uh, what should I learn from that? Um, and then how can I apply that going forward? Mm. Um, and we see some really significant impact there. I mean, that's, that's nothing. Yep. It's just – but it is a habit most of us don't have. I think that's the point, right? And, and it's we dismiss it for, for two reasons. One is we say, oh, it won't matter that much. Right. Um, and, and we did it first, too, um, in all honesty, and that's why we went and studied it, uh, that, you know, well, this can't be that important. And the research says it is. <laughs> I think the second thing is we're, we're back to, you know, well, I'll put it off today. Things creep in, right? right. Um, and so one has to be, um, I think, really zealous in the protection of their schedule, uh, both for things like reflection or even more broadly for break. 
breaks, uh, that uh, you know, if we don't actually carve out, you know what, I'm going to take time to eat lunch. I'm going to take time to you know, walk outside so I'm not sitting at a desk uh, for uh, eight, nine, ten hours, um, and that actually this is back to the slow down a little bit to speed up. Mm. It really um... – like like the reflection, I just I'm a small business owner too, and I sit there and I I think I'm too busy to reflect, yet right. my busyness is because I never reflect. Exactly, you're too busy not to reflect. Oh my heavens! Kind of turn that around. Yeah, yeah. Does um, okay. So talk to me about this one because kind of the bias, and in business it's so big. Uh, this this bias to succeed to kind of to always be moving towards success. Yep. And if you're the one that sits there and says, hey, uh, maybe we ought to slow this conversation down and make sure we're trying to fix the right thing, sometimes everyone looks at you like you're anti-work, you're anti-growth. Right. How do you handle that? No, and that's a, that's a big challenge. And, and I think you have to be clear kind of what you're trying to accomplish, right? Um, that, uh, you know, in that conversation, it's it's almost pulling back to, to say, you know, hey, what is, what is our objective here, right? And um, frequently, I think we can all come up with a time where we've been in a meeting, um, and part you know we we spend you know an hour charging ahead, and we leave the meeting, and we walk out, and we say, hold on, we weren't even talking about the right question right. Uh, for the last hour. Um, and so having that individual who's willing to kind of raise their hand, and it's not quite you know the emperor has no clothes, but instead it's you know. What are we doing with this time? And if one can do that in a, obviously a kind and a productive manner of, you know, hey, what, what's the objective for our organization here? Um, and every organization is going to have a different one um, towards, you know, how they're trying to create value, that we alter that discussion just a little bit. Um, and what, what ends up happening is people see you as, you know, look, you're, you're a truth teller. You're someone who um, actually has the organization's best interest in mind. Um, mm. And, of course, then when you, know, you come up with activities to do, you're not saying, well, I'm going to go back to my office and reflect for the next four hours. Right. Let me you take a nap on work. that. You're, you're signing up on it, right? You're right. still going and doing stuff. Um, and so, again, productivity matters. Kind of the whole story here is how can we prepare ourselves to learn more? and to be more productive. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's it is you there's there's probably a dual responsibility for the one that understands the importance of making sure we're focusing on the right thing and you still need to produce. So because yep. because the top producers, I say this all the time that um, well, oh, it's a cool quote, but it's basically uh, superior performance fosters independence of action. So as soon as I – if I'm hitting the numbers, you can't question me if I'm – because I'm nailing what you want and yet I'm still asking the right questions, which means I'll probably be able to hit it again tomorrow and do it again tomorrow and the next day because – I mean a lot of us – and that's one of your big points in your article. We get so caught up on past performance and we assume it's going to be exactly what's needed tomorrow. But past performance could have you, you know, eventually selling a product that nobody needs anymore. Yeah, exactly. Competitors are going to catch up. Um, And so, you know, we need to execute and handle the operations of today, uh, but we also have to be scanning forward. Mm. Uh, We have to be a little bit kind of Janus-like. We're looking backwards but looking forwards at the same time. Um, And that's what this is really all about. By um, addressing these biases, then we can get those barriers out of the way um, and uh, and keep us moving. Is it – do you see it still in corporate America? I mean, because we talk about mindfulness now. We talk about so many 
other things, just like time to reflect. Is is it being more accepted in corporate America that people need to be thinking more? I, I think it, I think it is. I mean, I think we go through cycles. Um, so uh, we go back to IBM with their with their think um, you know right. line um, uh, from from many decades ago, um, and then I think there's an appreciation that you know we need to just speed things up a little bit. Um, and today, kind of an awareness that well, well, maybe we've pushed that a bit too far. Um, so I think the good news is is there's an awareness. I think there's still though um, you know a, a general skepticism um, and. And um, I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, lots of this we talk about kind of averages that people have to craft the right routine for them. Um, that, you know, what uh, where one person goes for a walk uh, for, for 15 minutes, another person might do yoga, another mm-hmm. person might engage in productive conversations uh, around some fun topics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there's no one size fits all in any of this. Mm-hmm. Is it um... – one of your another bias that you talk about is the bias toward experts. Yep. And and is what's that about? Teach us. And how do I help my people not always be looking to experts, but actually just bring me their information, which is yeah. just about as expert as I need sometimes. Exactly. I mean, I think that the problem is twofold. Um, one is that you know we assume somebody else has the knowledge that we need, um, and so we kind of look we look up, and whether yeah. it's looking to our leader or looking to kind of whatever whomever we've designated as an expert. Um, the other piece is that we tend to define what an expert is very narrowly, <laughs> um, and so whatever our field is, you know, we've got uh, you know it's the it's the chemical engineer or it's the computer programmer or it's the doctor or um, you know it's the machine tool expert whatever it happens to be. Uh, and I think what we're saying here is, you know, first broaden that up, recognize that uh, experience, uh, the idea of doing stuff repeatedly um, can take many forms. And that depending on the question we're trying to answer, it's not immediately obvious, you know, which experience is going to be most valuable. Um, and related to that, kind of what do you do about it? Um, it's recognizing that, you know, we as a leader want to encourage the folks that work for us and ourselves to really own the problems that affect them. Mm. Um, that it's not, you know, hey, I've got an issue. Let me kick it to somebody else. Instead, it's I've got an issue. Okay, um, let's figure out kind of what's going on here. What's the root cause of this? How do I address it? And if one can step through that, then absolutely, you know, I may need to reach out to someone else for help. Um, but if I've, you know, encouraged you to do that, and then I've empowered you to apply, you know, the knowledge that you have, then the organization has a chance to not only learn, um, but actually perform much better. Yeah. And so when we think about kind of that frontline customer experience, right, how much knowledge actually sits, you know, with that call center uh, operator who sits with the receptionist who's constantly interacting with, you know, customers as they walk in. And yet, you know, too many organizations leave that untapped uh, and don't actually, you know, what problems did you see today? Um, what can we do about it um, mm. and ever address that? Yeah. I mean, if you have, if you feel all the pressure and have none of the power to change your world, why would you try to learn anymore? Yeah, of course you wouldn't. If they're handing it down, okay, then you'll fall. You'll take the fall, not me. I'm just doing what you told me to do. Exactly. And And I guess that's, 
That's interesting, isn't it? But we, even if that would cost our job or our future, a lot of us would still, you know, I guess that's the lemming model where you just run off the side of the mountain because everyone's doing it. Well, you you stop thinking, unfortunately, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I, you just react. Organizations have, have beat that out of us. No, uh, totally. So uh, we we want to get it back in. As we as we kind of wrap this up again, we're speaking with Dr. Bradley Stotts from the University of North Carolina, and he's. He's got a great article, really. It is, it's so complete and it's so thorough because it not just discusses, it discusses the problem, but then it also breaks it into four basic ways of thinking of biases, but then also challenges that need to be solved and how to solve them. It's like the perfect kit to start working on this, but they need to go look it up. Um, This day and age, it's a weird time because uh, I'm not necessarily just bound to a company anymore. I mean, I am my own company. I can bring – so anything I go into a company and organization and learn, I can take it with me. Just as we wrap it up, what would you just suggest – where do we begin? How do I I begin to make sure I'm a leading – I'm a learning contributor to my team and I'm I'm somebody that can innovate and get learning with others – whether I stay or I go in my organization. Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing that I would do is is be aware um, that uh, on these four areas, the idea of success, of action, of fitting in, and of uh, expert focusing too much on experts, that that maybe I need to push myself a little bit away from each of those. Uh, be willing to take a little bit more risk. Uh, be willing to step back a little bit. Be willing to stand out, um, and be willing to rely on myself and get you know my team potentially to rely on themselves, um, and kind of start that process and see what happens. Mm. I think what our research would suggest um, is that will help engage you, engage folks around you, um, and lead to learning. Powerful, powerful stuff. Dr. Bradley Stotts, well done. I mean, honestly, thorough, thorough article. Uh, keep up the great work. I can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep finding more and bring you back because I've learned a ton. Appreciate you. I appreciate you. Matt. Love being on the show. Thank you. Dr. Bradley Stotts, University of North Carolina, folks. Again, when you, I mean, that's what you love about an academic that spends his life studying this. There's so much to learn. And again, the learning doesn't stop today, right? We'll do this again tomorrow. We'll do it again the next day. Anyway, powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, uh, wrap up this uh, second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Learning right here on BYU Radio. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears. They're they're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid to want to fix it. Um, and it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into it was also very, very fascinating. I think because. There's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, okay? And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Not interesting. 
One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? I mean, like they can target paranormal beliefs that that directly, but it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China, and there's a, there's a belief. You know, you got to get married, so. Listen to what happened. Uh, Three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua News Agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi, Province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So, a single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was twenty five thousand yuan. Is that how you say that? Four thousand dollars. Anyway, they uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see, we hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. Anyway, that's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show. We will be back. This episode of The Matt Townsend Show was recorded previously. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, that free-range parenting, it's such an interesting thing because we can all think of an example where, oh, yeah, but so-and-so did this and she was hurt or she was abused or she had this. We, we have these fearful examples. And yet um, we also could empower our kids to be able to do more themselves, think more on their own. Uh, yesterday, for example, Mother's Day, we allowed, I guess, our 10-year-old to cut tomatoes, which doesn't seem like a big deal. But he's missing three fingers. So we thought we really ought to. No, but we're afraid he might cut his finger, right? So do you remember back in the day when you got the chance to cut your own tomatoes? Did you lose a finger? (laughs) By the way, if you did get cut, you learned a lesson. And how many times can we teach our children or anybody, our adults, our friends, our neighbors, anybody around us, how to do something and they'll still get hurt? Getting hurt is part of this game. And yet a lot of us feel like if we could just avoid all potential pain, then um, everything will go well. But it's not true. Um, It's not true. And honestly, one of the benefits, I think, of my parents separating or divorcing is I was a latchkey kid. I was home every day, multiple hours in the afternoon by myself from probably nine on. And one thing, just so you know, I loved it. It was my greatest time of day because I was free. I was free to do what I needed to do. I locked myself out of my house. I figured out a way in. I sneaked in. I figured it out. And I could then be, I could sneak in. And uh, or break in, I guess that was what I was doing. I figured out how to to fix the air conditioner on the top of our house on our roof. I figured out how to fix a lawnmower. I would mow the lawn on my own from about 12 on. I was out there with a lawnmower and it every one of those things, no matter how hard it was for me, it'll I tinkered around and I figured stuff out. I now have these kids that they don't tinker. <laughs> They don't, we don't ask them to go work on the air conditioner because we don't work the air conditioner. We just call somebody to fix the air conditioner because I don't have a clue how to do that kind of air conditioner. But we don't even give our kids a chance to go out and test stuff and try stuff and make mistakes. Do you? Do you allow mistake making in your children? Well, we can't allow them to kill themselves. Well, no, let's not do a mistake if we're jumping out of an airplane. I agree. However, mowing the lawn, well, yeah, it could be super. Sure, it could. Absolutely. And what we need to do then is teach them what mistakes we can't make. A kid can make a mistake and hit a sprinkler. They can make that mistake. And if they make that mistake, they also get the benefit of fixing that mistake. And when I get to go fix the sprinkler that they ran over, we're going to go do that together. Do you make sure that the consequences of your children's decisions are also part of their life? I, I saw a really great um, just uh, like post on Facebook of a mom carrying everything out of her son's basketball game, and the son was basically not carrying anything. 
the son wants to bring all of his other gear and shoes and towels and all these things to play a sport, but he ends up not carrying it. He ends up getting the after game treat and then hands the wrappers to his mother. There's consequences along the entire pathway here that we should be making sure our children are are able to experience. And I think a lot of us really want to be the shock absorbers for our children. And we become the shock absorbers between them and the world. And in the end, it just wears down us and it just weakens them. So how are you doing as a parent? Are you allowing your child to take some hits? Have you ever let them fail at something? Have you ever let them not do an assignment and you not run it in at the last minute or come in and save the day and fix that assignment for your child so that they can get an A? Have you ever let them just fail? Because the reality of life is they better get used to failure. And you don't have to you don't have to just abandon these kids, but we need to make sure that they're skilled in the art of failing because it's going to be a major part of existence. And the more we can do something with it, the more we can allow failure and teach the great lesson. I think what it is a lot of times is some of us are so we're so um, kind of negligent in the in the day to day stuff with our kids that we try to make up for it in the big stuff. And maybe what we ought to do is allow some of the big stuff to just happen, like a kid not doing an assignment, and instead get more involved in the day-to-day with our kids. Be there more. Be there. When you when I'm fixing the sprinkler, make sure my boys are there watching me do that. They have no idea. They think a sprinkler fairy changes our sprinklers. They don't know that I'm out there digging a hole for an hour. So... Do you, how are you as a parent? Do you make sure that the kids are learning it and are they learning it day in and day out? Because I think if you, if you did that and you happen to lose a kid at a fair or at a park, I'll bet you your kid might be able to get home just based on your skills that you've entrained, right? So we can worry all we want or we can empower our kids with the tools. Life's still going to happen. Do you know how many people I know that have been abused by somebody in their family, right? So you can worry all you want about the neighborhood being horrible or the park being the bad place or whatever. It's still, it can happen right there in your own home. So worry all you want, but train up your kids. Teach them the principles of life and especially the principle of responsibility for what they do. Let them fail once in a while. And when we do, guess what happens? Apparently learning takes place. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing learning. We all do it, right? And by the way, it's going to go on forever. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the things that just is such a human trait, okay, is we tend to oversimplify, right? We've got to just, you know, keep it clean, keep it simple. But we also tend to, um, we tend to, I guess, uh, objectify. We tend to use things for our advantage, and many would say, well, it's just a B for heaven's sakes. But here's the deal that he told us on the way out. Um, a lot of companies, and we've talked about GMO foods recently, uh, genetically modified foods. Well, they're, they're also trying to kind of – some companies are trying to create kind of the super mega B 
the bee that can take and get rid of, you know, that, that doesn't fall to the American foul brood disease or this bee that's stronger in this category. And they kind of create this this mega bee that genetically is um, powerful and strong. And then they mass breed it and then I'll or mass yeah, breed it and then they mass take mass hives with a lot of bees that pretty much have the exact same genetic makeup, right? And they're doing this so that we can go in and like really maximize our crops and our usage. And then a new bacteria or a new disease comes along. And because there's no genetic differences between this entire, you know, millions of bees, they might fall prey to a disease. And as an entire population, the entire population drops. They all die together. Because we're mixing and we're messing. We're trying to create the uber super. And it teaches me a really cool lesson just, I guess, about humanity. Maybe we don't need more uber, you know, super mega perfect, amazing breeds. Maybe what we need is just the average bee with an average genetic makeup that does their job incredibly well. And this is the same as humans. Maybe we don't need to go be the uber-perfect uber person and try to breed an uber-perfect company that has everybody exactly doing everything exactly. Maybe what we need to do is just actually let people be people, let bees be bees, understand what they need, take care of their needs. Don't just use them and ship them and truck them around. Work on our pesticides so we understand the impact. Start looking at our systems in our lives as a whole instead of just you know, a bunch of parts. There's one big whole and we're all somehow connected and you can't impact one without impacting another. You can't put the bees in the truck, you know, to go to go pollinate an almond field if almonds aren't what are the best food sources for the bees. You know what I mean? Then if you're going to do that, I guess, go take them out to party at the best, you know, clover field in the world where they really can get nutrients that they need. We're just used to using people. We're used to using things. And again, I get it. They're insects. They're insects. But the minute you lose them, you're going to understand it. And I'm just saying, don't use the same mentality with your family, with your friends. Let's quit using each other. Let's start seeing each other as distinct, unique, important. Man, it, you know, what applies with bees also applies with people. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back after this break with more interesting ideas right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, joining us in studio is our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby, assistant professor in the school here of family life at Brigham Young University. He's also the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. You really need to uh, go to relateinstitute.com because there's assessments you can take with your partner and find out. You can really find out what's going on. It's great. It's really cool work, Brian, that you're doing. Yeah, it might be the best website ever. No, I think, I think of all time. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I, you're not biased, though. No, not at all. Except you're totally biased. Um, 
but that's not what you're talking about today. Today right. you're going to help us blow up some myths because you hear – everybody out there hears examples of why people don't want to get married. They right. have all these myths and you're you're here to say – I'm going to give you the reason why you shouldn't get married, and I'm going to tell you why it's completely messed up. Exactly. There are, there are, like you said, a lot of myths out there that are perpetuated by the media. We hear about them from our friends. And everyone's trying to answer this question, why are people not getting married anymore? Right. What, well, what, what is it? I think it's our parents were messed up. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's, <laughs> that's underlying everything we're going to talk about today. Exactly. It's the baby boomers it's messing the, everything up. I can't tell you how many young adult conference <laughs> research conferences I've gone to where the main message from the scholars there are baby boomers have messed everything up. <laughs> are you serious? Yeah. That's the whole premise. Well, duh, every parent generation messed up their kids some way. Yeah. Th- this might just be more catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> it's because there's so many of them. Yeah. Hey, um, talk about – because give us the data though. Fewer couples are marrying and they're marrying later. Right. Yeah. So people are, are waiting longer and longer to get married. The average age of marriage is about 28 for both men and women now, so really? almost a 30. Yeah. Um, the percent of people every year that are getting married is declining. And the big one is for the last couple of years, the total proportion of our po- – the percent of our population that is married has been declining. Wow. So even though we've seen the declining marriage rates, et cetera, for 20, 30 years, for a long time, it's only been the last 10 or so years that we've seen the percent of married people just total declining, which basically starts to show us that over – if these trends continue, being married is going to be – an endangered population pretty soon wow. in our society. What? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, then eventually, so I assume, too, they're going to have fewer children. Right. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden we're going to be China. Yeah. And in fact, the U.S. is one of the few industrialized countries where our fertility rates are still about at what we call replacement rate, which means we can yeah. replace our population. Most places in Europe... A lot of places in Southeast Asia are well below that and having population crisis, fertility issues. Isn't that? But I thought that the world was getting overpopulated and we were going to have to like slowly, you know, kill people. In Africa. In, in Africa, Africa and parts of Asia, there, there's parts there's of the world. There's still some overpopulation that, Yeah, the problem. most impoverished parts of our world are, are struggling with overpopulation and having enough resources. But if you look at the industrialized parts of the world, again, us – most of Europe, parts of you mean the ones with of, all the resources, yeah, the ones with all the food and the money, <laughs> um, they are actually having a, a fertility crisis, and we don't we don't talk about it as much in the U.S. because we're not quite there, yeah. Um, but you go to parts of Europe and other parts of the world, and there is a major fertility crisis. There. So the baby boomers. Somebody asked me why they think uh, these kids, these younger kids, aren't marrying, and they, they thought. Some of it might have to do with um, the fact that we, we've we overparented them. We've kind of made them – they've never had to like learn or try and experience and fail and kind of go through. But the process of dating is a lot of try and trying and failing. Right. Yeah. The, the underlying theme of most of what we're going to talk about is fear. And a lot of that does come yeah. from parents is a lot of young adults as they're dating or not dating – and thinking about marriage or not thinking about marriage, uh, there's a lot of fear, oh. anxiety about what that relationship will be like, what they're going to lose if they decide to get married. You brought that up too that in the past about the the myth that you you know you got to find the one, right? That you know the one, yeah, that one person that's going to make me completely happy yeah. out there. You better hope she's yeah. not in Uganda. Or as we talked about, if if I'm an educated, rational person, there's not one person. <laughs> there might be ten. Yeah, yeah you got to find I one, gotta of, find the one of the ten. <laughs> Out there somewhere. Right. Yeah. And that you'd have to date. Right. I have to find them. You I have to talk. 
And then they got to make me happy because that's, that, that's what matters <laughs> is if you make me happy. Oh, we have messed them up, haven't we? Those baby boomers. Not Luckily, I'm not even a baby boomer, but they really messed these kids up. <laughs> not, not all of them. Not all of them. A lot. So you're going to sort of sort through that. Um, but one of the first myths, let's blow up, because is the whole money idea. That, like people want to be ready. They want to they have their degree in college or whatever. They want to have their job. They want to maybe even have a home. They want to be totally, totally ready to get right. married. Yeah, the money thing is huge for young adults today. And I, I, I teach a family stress class, and we go through all the horrible things that can happen to people, divorce, death, chronic illness. The scariest day in that class is the family finance day. And all I do <laughs> is I put them in groups. I say, okay, you're going to be a little family in groups of three or four. I'm going to give you $65,000 a year. I just want you to budget it. That's all we're going to do today. And it scares them to death. Does it really? Like, oh. Yeah. Like, well, what about, what about my Xbox? What about my cell phone <laughs> Do they plan? start fighting? Yeah. Well, they start just getting really anxious about my life <laughs> is over, all these plans. And it doesn't help that we're in a social science. Yeah, right. And so they're not going to make any money anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this fear and anxiety that I need to have all of these things first. And, and for mo- most modern young adults, and the thing I have to point out to a lot of them is their expectations about their standard of living is very different than their parents. Oh, yeah. Again, they expect that I'm going to have the, the TV. I'm going to have the cell phone plan. I'm going to have the Internet service. I'm going to have all of these things. You start adding that per month. That's several hundred dollars a month that your parents didn't have to deal with right. when they were 20 right. years old, 25 right. years old. But they want it right away. And they want to be able to take vacations. And they want to have a car. And so um, it was interesting when I used to teach in the Midwest um, – and I would ask the students, you know, what do you need to have financially before you get married? And the top two things were a house that's paid for. Oh, yeah, sure. And I need to have started my college, my kids' college education fund wow. before I even get married, before we even have kids. Those are the top two things. <laughs> Jeez. And, 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 and so there's this anxiety that not only do I want to have all those things, I need to have them all set before I make that transition. What were, I mean, what were you th- – I wasn't thinking any – I was thinking I'll need a ring. Right. Yeah, that that was about me. I was, I was like thinking, in, who can I borrow like money from be done with to get to the ring right. part of it? Yeah, and it's a very different mentality, this idea of I'm going to build something together with someone, right. and, and it's going to be hard, and we're going to struggle together. But that's going to bring us closer together. I know from my wife and I, we definitely feel that now. Oh, yeah. As we look back at those early years of our marriage when Subway and Little Caesars was a fancy Big night. Yeah, deal. that was a night, date night for us. Right. Um, that, that, that was a really powerful period of growth for us. And, and now we appreciate all the things oh. that we have a lot more. Um, but for a lot of young adults, it, it is. It's I need to get my college education done. I need to get my career set and not just you know have my job, right? but I need to be in that job for a couple of years because you don't know if I'm going to keep that job. I don't know if they're going to ship me across the country. That's another big part that's tied to education and finances is, is just residential mobility. Am I going to be in the same place right. for a long and period where, of time? And yeah, where can you make your living? Right. It's uh, I, I see BYU students all over that, you know, they have their big screen TVs. They have their Xbox. Mm-hmm. They have. And I'm like, where do you put this? Well, right. I just put it in my dorm room. <laughs> right. And, you have and, a big screen TV in your dorm room? Yeah. And, and for a lot back to the baby boomers messing everyone up. <laughs> one of the reasons that happens for a lot of young adults is that they're partially funded by their parents. That's true. That mom and dad might be paying for some of my tuition. They might be helping me with my rent. Yeah. And so now I have a lot more discretionary income. But mom and dad have also been really clear that as soon as I get married, now I'm an adult and I have to pay for all of this stuff. And so marriage becomes a pay cut. 
Oh, it really does. I, well, I remember my first when my first child got married, I had to wean her off of every account I have. Yeah. Even like my Netflix, she's yeah. still like popping on. Yep. Hey, oh, oh, get off, get off. You're not in my family anymore. Except my granddaughter just was born, so now she's back. Okay. I brought my daughter back in. Um, interesting stuff. So you're saying it doesn't – money should not be the concern. Well, obviously, I mean, I there, mean yeah, it there, is. But... There's a point where we need to make sure that people aren't in poverty. Yeah. But, but just the act of getting married doesn't make someone poor. In fact, if, from a financial standpoint, there's tax benefits to yeah. being married. There's actually financial incentives to getting married. Um, a lot of this is just kind of this myth of the marriage isn't going to work right. unless we have certain resources. And again, to an extent, that's true. If we're in poverty and we can't put food on the table for myself, getting married isn't going to be a magic pill to help that. Um, but it also isn't going to necessarily automatically decrease my well-being. We're not going to be more likely to divorce just because we're not making you know 200000 versus 100000 versus right. Do, do married 000. men, for example, make more money than non-married men? Yes, they do so on average. it actually is good for business. Yeah. yeah. It's good for your finances. Because yeah, my wife drove me like a – like she was like riding a mule. Exactly, yeah. For, particularly for married men is that they tend to be more driven. They do better in the workforce. They make more money. Yeah. And, and part of it is that I'm supporting – Multiple people now. I'm sure. more driven, I'm more goal oriented, and so they they do. Married men tend to make more money than single men. I look at my son-in-law that just they just had a baby, and we were in the room after the baby was born, and like a day after, and we're talking, and his whole focus is, I got to make more money now. Right. I got to get going. Yeah, I got to, and he's already doing incredibly well. Right, and yet I think I think that's because he's married too. There's just a different focus. Yeah, yeah. I, I think of like a 29 year old. That didn't have that impetus, mm-hmm. you might. I mean, I guess you've traveled maybe more, right? Yeah, the, it's a it's a different focus. Mm-hmm. It's it's I get to travel the world. If they do, but then yeah. some don't. They yeah. just are twenty nine and they still haven't tried, but they will. Right, they're yeah. about to. Yeah, they, they think they're about to. <laughs> oh, Brian. Good stuff. Uh, we'll take a break. We're coming back more with Dr. Brian Willoughby. Again, you got to go check out the website. Uh, Relate. Institute.com. If you're having any issues or if you're about to get married, it's a great place to go to because you can take the assessments and then find out what you need to work on. They have activities you can work on and learn and grow. It's just a simple way to improve your marriage today, right this minute. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby from Brigham Young University. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Dr. Brian Willoughby, His Excellency, he likes to be called. He's an assistant professor at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. Uh, his expertise, by the way, includes area of dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes, and beliefs. Man, um, and I love you, Brian, because you bring out um, – there's there's a lot of myths. There's a lot of research. We hear a lot of stuff, and none of it's – not none of it. Much, much of it is a little far-blown. Right. Right? So we hear like, 
Yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta know who you're marrying. What you do, and you, you can eventually, you could live together. You could cohabitate. Yeah, little, little kernels of truth in some aspects right. that we blow up into big things and make absolute statements that are usually not true. And, and it's, and it seems like it would make sense. Like maybe living with somebody mm-hmm. would. You know, improve the likelihood of you knowing if you want to marry them, like a pre-marriage, it's right. like a pre-trial. Yeah. You know, you want to try your yeah. car before you... Right. It, 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 and, it, and the interesting thing is that that does make sense for those couples that don't have a moral obligation to it, that are engaged, and then do it right before they get married as that actual little test before. Those couples end up okay. Uh-huh. The other couples will say, well, we haven't really talked about marriage, Yeah, but let's try things out for a couple of years. Those couples struggle. So it's, the, it's really having the commitment. It's mm-hmm. being willing. It's the moral belief in it anyway. Right. We're moving that way. We're unified yeah. in this. Yeah. The importance of marriage, the importance of commitment. Yeah. Lo and behold, people that hold on to those ideals do better. Oh, I thought, see, I thought all these ideals were old fashioned. Oh, they are, but there's a reason for that. Because <laughs> it works. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That yeah, like re- that's why redefining marriage was such a big deal because it's not just who gets to marry; it's what thousands and thousands of years of principles that we kind of know work. Right? You They're know, not working perfectly, but and that's that's the hard thing about a lot of this stuff we're talking about is that when when we talk about how people think about marriage and their myths around marriage, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Okay, well, people don't value marriage maybe quite as much as they did, but we know that little shifts culturally oh. in those attitudes down the line. And that's the tricky thing is it's not right now. No, it's right. 10, it's 20, delayed. 30 years down the line, maybe even into the next generation. That's where we start to see these big, massive shifts. And we've seen more family trend shifts in the last 100 years than we've ever seen in human history because there's been so much cultural right. upheaval around right. how we think about relationships. Well, I guess, yeah, when you were in a tribe – and no one dared leave. <laughs> right. We stuck together. Yeah. Family was a no-brainer. Right. But, okay, here's another myth we got to blow up. How about the myth that I have to give up all my social circles for my spouse? I can't have a life. I can't hunt. Right. I can't, I can't do, do what I want to do. All these things once I get – the marriage will be the death <laughs> of me, right? It's, I've, yeah, I've, that I've seems totally I've had all real. these fun things that I've gotten to do and now I've got to grow up. <sighs> now I've got to be an adult. Now I can't do anything to fun. to budget. Yeah, which is funny because all the research we see says that the people that actually do that, they give up all their friends after they get married, they do have a really crummy life. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> but But – what people don't realize is that marriage oftentimes opens up more social avenues for you because you have all of your friends. Right. But now you have all of her, her friends or his friends. That's right. Yeah. Plus double the family. Yeah. Plus double the family, double the acquaintances, possibly double the coworkers. Yeah. You've now almost doubled, depending on how overlapped your social circles were yeah. to begin with, you've almost doubled your social network. Well, you've just made the argument if, that if you're an introvert, you shouldn't marry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you just brought a well, lot of people into my life. You don't have to interact <laughs> yeah, with them. That's but, right. You can also choose not to. Yeah, you can choose not <laughs> to. But but mar- marriage can, because of that, greatly increase people's social interactions. And sometimes it can be different because there is the natural kind of tendency to move away from single friends right. and move to couple friends. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but the myth that all of a sudden I'm going to lose all of my freedom – and all of my friends is is just that it's a myth. You and, and it, it can, it's all up for negotiation, right? That's the key, and, and sometimes that's really what's below the surface. 
is people don't want to negotiate. Yeah. I don't want to have to talk to someone. Right. I don't have to ask my wife about, if I can go hunting. Yeah, exactly. Which is probably means you probably aren't a good marriage partner anyway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, is that all of that's up up for negotiation. And then again, you're adding now these couple activities, these things that you maybe never realized that you liked that now you can do. I know for me, one of these things was musicals. I didn't grow up, me and my brother. Loving musicals. Loving musicals. Oh, I thought my, you did. I know. I give up that, give out that aura, right? You go sit at the cat's um, But my wife loves them. Does she? Loves musicals. And so this was one of those things she introduced me to uh, that's when we got married. And now I, I, I've got no shame. I oh, love yeah. musicals. Well, I heard you whistling Oklahoma when you came oh, in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's been one of these things that we love together now as a couple. How cool. You didn't even know you had gone Exactly. There. Yeah. I didn't know that that was something that I might enjoy. But because of my marriage, because of my expanded That's cool. um, activity and social network now, I, I know that. I always make jokes when I'm doing my group stuff about hunting and why guys go hunt. They don't go hunt to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had a lady in the class that just – her husband introduced her to hunting and she loves it. Yeah. And I go, do you love it or do you just love being with him? And she's like, no, I love it. Yeah. I'm like, like gutting a deer, she's like, well, but – it's the whole day. It's the whole event. It's yeah. so you can learn to love anything. Yeah, and that, that's. I mean, think about how different a mentality that is. Marriage doesn't close doors; it opens. Yeah, doors that's huge for me. No, that's great. Uh, what about the? Um, here's a reason not to get married because married people are miserable. They're well, yeah. just a bunch of negative, boring people that go to dinner and don't talk. That's and, a given, and yeah. then they divorce. Yeah, it's a given. <laughs> no, I mean back to the research. Um, we know that married people are are statistically more likely to be happier, with, just with life, Isn't that not, not in relationships, just with life. And there's something powerful about having someone that supports you. That's Again, excluding other variables. This is right. marriage makes you happier, right? Yeah, and and obviously, you know, we're talking in general. There are yeah. certainly marriages that are not making oh, sure. people right. happier, but on average. Married people are happier because you have that stability. You've got that person that you can count on, and it's different than dating. Because with dating, there's always this fear. Even if we have a really good relationship, yeah. on the back of my mind, I know that any at any moment you can walk away. There's not a commitment. There's yeah. not. I mean, that's what's interesting about marriage is you are legally stuck mm-hmm. and would have to undo a legal obligation. Right. Yeah, which makes it different. It's a it different make, level a of different. commitment going through that with someone. And so when I know I've got that person, that we're working towards things together, mm-hmm. we're building something together, there's just there's greater contentment. You know, when I'm yeah. having that down day, I don't just go hide by myself. I've got someone I can talk to. Yeah. And so I guess part of that is it's, for some people, it's easy to keep the myth alive. So if you don't want right. marriage, then just keep thinking it's miserable. Right. Well, and like almost any negative thing out there in our society, what happens with this is we don't talk about the happy, fulfilled couples. Right. We all hear the stories about the miserable couples. Did you hear so and so? Yeah. The one of your friend, that one couple exactly. out of your five hundred friends. Yeah. And then it's that story that goes through our social circles and social media now. So true. And we hear that and then we we take that one story. We ignore the twenty five other couples yeah. that we know that are doing awesome. And we focus on, wow, they they seem like they were fine. That's so true. And that's now they're human, not. huh? That's just what we do. Right. We awfulize. We uh, catastrophize. How about this one? Another uh, reason not to get married. You're going to miss out on all your dating opportunities or sexual opportunities that you had when you were single. You're going to be, you're going to be more boring. 
Right. You're so, not going to have as much opportunity. So two parts to this. Number one, to the sex specifically. Yeah. It's where building up all these wonderful things about marriage. Married people have more sex. What? I know. But I thought they just never did and they always just complained about it. No. Again, those are the stories we hear about. But, but they have sex to have babies. Nope. Oh, my They don't word. do that. They, they actually have people? sex for fun. And more, and more than a and single. More. Yes, more than a single person, more than most daters. Um, married people have more regular sex and more satisfied sex. Are you – really? Yes. See, but that's such an illusion. Huh? We think mm-hmm. the singles are out there just partying it up, mm-hmm. having sexual relations, and then they're – and it's so much more fulfilling. Right. It's and, not. and that's what we see in the TV shows. That's what we see in the yeah. movies. But there's actually a really big literature out there about sexual regret. Really? Like a heaviness? Yeah, there's a significant portion of young adults that are dating that that talk about how many of their sexual experiences end with regret. That I kind of wish I didn't end up with that guy or that girl. I kind of wish I hadn't done that. And that that happens a lot versus a married partner who, because of our experience with each other, because of the years we've been together, we start to hopefully in a good relationship – we're communicating. We understand each other. Hmm. And so that the intimacy can be at a deeper level and more satisfying for a lot of people. Well, is, talk about – we also think that we've got to date so many people to know who's the one we need to marry. Right. Yeah. So there's this idea about sexual chemistry. Yeah. Um, and I, I published actually a couple studies in a, a couple of years ago on this very issue actually looking because no one had ever actually talked about Yeah. To see if that works. Does the whole sexual chemistry, I need to find someone that I'm sexually compatible uh-huh. with, um, play out in marriage. And we actually found that it, it was the opposite. That the the people that were abstaining from sex till marriage actually had more healthy relationships and better sex lives than the people that had multiple partners before marriage. And what we, we think we were seeing in that particular study is that as soon as I start getting that into my head, that sexual chemistry idea. Yeah. Even once I commit and marry, there's this part of my brain that starts to wonder, could it be better? Well, it makes sure maybe it's the dopamine trigger. Like you've you've kind mm-hmm. of Pavlovianly yeah. made yourself think that, oh, I got to keep my eye open for that right. better partner. Yeah. And then oftentimes that mentality goes hand in hand with the idea that sex is about physical pleasure. Right, exactly. That's what makes you a good sexual partner. And we forget the emotional connection uh-huh. with intimacy. We forget the spiritual connection with intimacy. That's right. The people that were abstaining, they were thinking about intimacy more collectively. And so even if it wasn't the most physically pleasurable sex we've ever had, I connected with you emotionally yeah. and spiritually, and, and that was still really satisfying for me. And we're together, and it's and we're a fan. Yeah, there's so much more to it, isn't right. there? Man. Last but not least, uh, the, the other um, myth or, I guess, reason not to get married is you're going to lose your independence, which we kind of talked about. But right. you're, you're going to lose all freedom. Right. Yeah, that's that's You'll probably, a, yeah. you mean it's ball and chain. Yep. That I can't do those things. Yeah. That I want to do anymore. And, and again to to a degree like a lot of these myths, there can be a kernel of truth in that because uh-huh. now as we talked about, you do need to negotiate with another person. Right. But the idea that life is over when you're married is problematic not just for the fact that as we talked about it's not true, but because oftentimes if I hold that internally when I make that transition, I'm thinking about it as a transition of loss, not right. of gain is that I'm going through this, and yeah, I love you, and I like this relationship, but man, I'm going to always kind of think about my single years as this great opportunity. And again, oftentimes that can linger. And and when we inevitably fight, mm-hmm. and we have those bad days or bad weeks, 
I'm going to start thinking to myself, man, I remember how much remember happier I was when I was single. When I could just play video games? Yeah, that seems kind of nice. Long. And, and we lose that sense of commitment huh. sometimes. And so, so holding that particular myth sometimes can actually be a risk factor right. for having a good marriage. Yeah. I wonder if sometimes we think we're more independent than we are. Mm-hmm. We're really just dependent, you know. Yeah. And then we get into a marriage and we find out that we are addicted to video games or we right. were just we were we weren't as independent as we thought we were just kind of lazy and we didn't want to have to be disciplined. Yeah. Or we use the word independence to really mean selfish. Exactly. No, exactly. I, I like to be selfish right now. <laughs> And marriage is gonna is gonna hurt my ability to be selfish. Isn't which that is true? But like even the Declaration of Independence, there's something more than being independent. That's right. great. You gotta get you gotta get independent. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you want to be interdependent. You want to use your independence and freedom with someone else to create something bigger. Yeah, we're an independent right. union. Exactly. I like that metaphor we're going. With. That is really cool. Yeah. Man, it's like you thought about this, Bry. It's almost like it's my job. It's like you study it every day. Um, well, in the end, okay, do you – I don't see how this changes. I mean short of us teaching it, talking it, pushing people more to understand, it just seems like the the natural tendencies of society today are going against marriage. Yeah. I, I actually do think one thing that we can do, and this is something that um, my graduate school advisor and I actually talk about and, and do a couple things related to is is – pushing, not necessarily attacking the myths and the negativity, which is important. But right, like yeah. you said, we have that tendency anyway. It's building up the positive examples. Yeah. Showing is, the, Yeah. The, talking more about these great couples we have that have been married for 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. years and celebrating that. Yeah. You know, getting back to celebrating healthy relationships in our society, I think, can show, particularly young adults, that there are good positive role models out there. There's good mentors out there for what healthy relationships look like. And yeah, not every relationship in marriage is going to look like that. There's going to be people that, that struggle in their marriage, and divorce is always going to happen. Right. But look, here are good, positive role models for you because that's what's kind of lacking. Well, that's what we need. Yeah, that's a, then that becomes the attractor. Now everyone wants that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I want that. Right. And, exactly. you can, and if we could find those models in our own lives, our mm-hmm. own community, yeah. and maybe be those models. Exactly. Yeah, and for most people, that's, that's really all they have right now is I can look to my mom and dad. And then I've – hopefully they were a good example <laughs> yeah. or they're not. Yeah. But then outside of that, there's not a lot of – again, you look at TV and movies. You look at what we just put out in our culture. There's not a lot of really positive examples. Mm. Um, maybe that's what we should be doing on Relate, the Relate Institute. You, you need to start – Doing video vignettes of the greatest couples of all time. We are starting to do some video. We did. Our, we actually released our first one this well, week. Go it was on pornography, this. though, so it well. wasn't about. Wah, wah, re- well, it was wah, about relationships. Wah. But are you on it? Do you talk? I'm. I'm the voiceover. Well, well you're, you've got a face for television. Yeah, yeah. We can't put me on the video. <laughs> you're the voiceover. You've got a voice for radio and television. Well, we appreciate you, Dr. Brian Willoughby. You can go check out the website relateinstitute.com or go to his uh, personal website, Dr. Dr. Brian. Willoughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com. Really, he's got he's got the answers. He's young. He's hip. Uh, who's your mentor? Uh, Dr. Bill Doherty. Bill Doherty. William Doherty. Yep. He is the guru of rituals and finding the, the great iconic uh, people. He's a great guy. Man, he's your man. Mm-hmm. What a, a chip off the old will or a chip off the old uh, block. That's pretty cool. Go check out drbrianwilloughby.com and uh, relateinstitute.com. Good stuff. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I love it when uh, Dr. Willoughby comes on. Because off air, I ask him a million other questions that you don't hear. But in the, in the end, there's so many myths that we just got to blow up. He, he blew up about four. But now, Ben, now that you've heard this, are you ready to go get married? I'll probably have to meet someone first. Well, yeah, you'd probably have to date someone first. Yes. Do you date much, Ben? Yeah. How often I, would you say you date? It's sporadic. Sometimes I date more than others. Like once a year, once a month, once a week? Um, So I went on a date like before I went on a mission to Germany. Yeah. One time. You went one but, time. And then so, so, so you're going to go on another one. You, how long ago was that? Three years ago? Three years. So I was thinking maybe. Maybe another one soon? Yeah, I, I try like once every four years-ish. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yep. It's going to be a very long road for you, son. Uh, the funny thing is I've got like 20 people that would date you today. Yeah, it's... They're just waiting for that four-year mark. Yeah, I can I can only do one or two. No, I don't blame no, you. Yeah. No, you got to pace yourself. Like, you got to understand, like, my reasoning... Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I'm not sure you understand your reasoning, do you? Yeah, my reasoning's bull. I told my son very simply: three hundred dates, three hundred dates, you'll find your wife. And he's like, "What?" So if you want the three hundred dates to take you twenty years, like Ben's case, it'll take you thousands, thousands of years. <laughs> um, but one of the cool things that uh, we had a guy on our show uh, from the University of Utah talking about the fact that. 29 to 30 is the best, supposedly the age, the best age to get married if you don't want to get divorced. Okay? So if you don't want to be divorced, 29-year-olds, that's the age. However, and Dr. Willoughby just blew it up, except that's just to avoid divorce. If you actually want to be happily married and have the best chance of making it, and feel marital satisfaction, 23, no, 22 to 25 is the ideal age. Different than 29. I think most of the millennials are on the 29 track. Ben, like at your rate, you're on the, you know, you're on the 1,500-year track. Yeah, it's kind of like when people get sentenced to jail for 2,000 years. Yeah, that's kind of the reasoning I place with it. Okay, the analogy at least. Well, let's. I'm going to help you work on this because we. You may not remember remember, but your predecessor James Birdsall, we he came in having never dated ever in his life, no human being. I'm not sure if that's accurate, but it seems accurate. And we, within about a year, he was married. He found an incredible partner. They dated. Bada boom, bada bing, they got married, they're happily married now. So there's no reason Benjamin James Wasden, no reason that you can't be married in a year. Okay, so are you going to line the dates up for me? Well, we might have to. <laughs> I'm not afraid. Hey. But you have to date the people I pick. I will date anybody you give me. Holy cow. That's great. Okay, you're dead. 
prepare to die. Uh, interesting stuff. We will eventually get Ben at least dating. We, who knows? You know, might take a while. But we'll get him dating. He's a catch. If anybody wants to date Ben, give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. If you're a parent that would like a really great German-speaking, brat-eating guy, give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. Or look us up on Twitter, at Dr. Matt Show. You can also just email me, Dr. Matt Townsend at Gmail. We'll, we'll, we'll hook you up. We'll you know find your partner. Stick with us, folks. Hour number two. It's in the books. We'll come back. Next hour, more tools right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. In studio... Two of the greatest producers ever on the face of this earth. They're here to do the segment. Oh, actually, one of them's here. I'm just kidding. Three producers, because Terry's here too. I had to say that. That's I mean, two producers. <sighs> Extraordinaire. We like to do the segment called Meet the Producers. Liz Miller's joining us, as is Kaylee Kia Optima Danes. That's a good one. Yeah. Two of the great producers on the show. They make everything happen. They're happy as ever to be here. And today on the on the weekend before the Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we you know, we're getting ready for that great weekend and we and Monday off. Mm-hmm. We thought we would do a little civil rights history. Yeah, so we just wanted to kind of rehash what went on during that time. So the March on the nation's capital on yes. Washington is kind of like huge. What sticks out in people's minds right. a lot, yeah. Uh, do you happen to know the date for that? Um, no, I don't. Okay, I didn't but it was either. a wonderful moment it was. at Lincoln Memorial, right? Mm-hmm. That's the I have a dream speech march. Yeah, exactly. all around then. Okay, what year was that? Because I don't remember much about it. Okay, it's possible you were not yet here. Okay, here in the great here earth. What yeah. what year was it? So it was 1963, yeah. August 28th. Wow. Um, so the March on Washington had a quarter of a million people present. Wow. And it was a very peaceful march. They had marshals in the crowd um, who were exercising their crowd control um, abilities just to yeah. make sure everyone was safe. But everyone was very peaceful. Um, Can you they, imagine that? A quarter of a million people. This was a big moment. Yeah. Huge. Like That's crowd cool. surfing would be amazing. I wasn't that. born yet. I was six years <laughs> pre-birth. So you, you were probably just envious, I, actually. I think my mom was recovering from my sister. <laughs> That's how old this was. Um, so, But a very peaceful march, not because there was a lot of turmoil before this. It yeah, was causing was. a lot of tension, which we've kind of experienced with Ferguson lately. And I mean, not to this degree, but I mean, it was huge. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, an interesting thing about kind of what was going on then is, did you know that the I Have a Dream speech, that phrase, was yeah. actually not originally in King's speech? It wasn't? It wasn't. He just made, he added it in? So what happened was um, one of the women who was performing there, Mahalia Jackson, called out to Martin in the middle of his speech when there was a pause and said, Martin, talk about your dream. And she was referencing a speech that he had given two months prior and he um, obliged her and changed his speech and just started what? going for what we now all call, you know, the Martin Luther King 
march and his I have a dream speech. And just that's what we remember about that. He just ad-libbed that? Yeah. That is cool. What if she had not said that? Like we would have just heard the whatever speech. Not half as impactful. Yeah, and he originally wasn't even going to be speaking at the the march. He took the last slot um, just kind of on a whim. He wasn't scheduled. showed up to give probably one of the most (laughs) famous speeches we all know. Right. Wow. Mm -hmm. How cool. And Mahalia, who said – who? and she's like, do the I have a dream. Tell us about your dream. Yep. She was one of the performers there, and she just – so maybe we should thank her for that. Yeah. Wait, I have never even heard this story. Yeah. So it really wasn't even his – Speech. It was really her motivation that made that all happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people yeah. would say he pulled it out. He made it happen. <laughs> well, it was his dream. Yes. But, yeah. That's beautiful. That's cool. Now, do you guys, how does it impact you youngins? I mean, you're so young, you don't remember probably anything like this. <laughs> right. Well, you're so we, young. I guess today kind Impressionable. of our civil rights movement our greatest comparison would be the black lives matter movement. that's right um and there are a lot of i think similarities between the two movements um kind of the differences i guess would be where the civil rights movement was really focused on political um, rights that they wanted and more societal like um equalization the black lives movement is really more or black lives matter is for just a general like acceptance and uh, big on like the policing um, they they go and they protest a lot of the the deaths um, of black lives um, by the hands of police officers and enforcement. Yeah, I mean, we hear a lot about this now, right? And mm-hmm. then even like prisons and the unfair treatment of minorities in prison and, you know, gun or laws and automatic sentencing laws. And I mean, there's a lot of, in a weird way, it's actually more because when I grew up, we we just heard of the we heard the I have a dream speech, but I didn't see a lot of you know movement in civil rights. Mm-hmm. It, I guess it had all been legislated or not legislated, but adjudicated. Right now, it's like you see some movements: Black Lives Matters, Ferguson, Baltimore, and then these shootings of police with police officers and 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 black men. And I mean, it's it's now maybe more of your life than it ever was my life. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see the progression because even up until this March, it had been a hundred years since the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, and so a hundred years later, they're still working on these rights. And now, what fifty or so years later, we're still working on these yeah. rights, and it's still a work in progress. But it's interesting to see how we do it differently. There's a lot of social media involved, yeah. and. You know, this the Black Lives Matter movement is saying a lot of their own very well articulated arguments and they're they're organized and they're doing it very similarly in many ways to how mm-hmm. um King did it and also there are a few differences. There's kind of a really powerful level. I mean, King plays such a huge role, which is why the holiday, right? I mean it's but he's he's almost iconic he's so iconic that you wonder if anyone can relate to him. People like Jesse Jackson who supposedly you know, was with him or marched or was on march, you know, but they don't seem to have the same appeal even to the younger folks as maybe Martin Luther King Jr. did. Now maybe it's more of the stars. It's maybe athletes. It's maybe some of these other people that are that are getting more attention with some of these movements. I don't know. I'm not I'm not hip enough to even <laughs> know what's going on in the culture. You guys are, of course, because oh, you're yeah. young. Right. 
You have automatically hip. <laughs> yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the automatic hipness of it all. What? Um, so Monday, though, in the end, it's, it could just be a holiday. People just take a holiday. Nobody thinks about really the lives that were that were impacted that made all of this happen. Yeah, which is kind of a shame. I know, like, I personally also need to like do something specifically. But I know yeah. here at the university, they're doing a commemoration walk. Where they're going to walk um, around, and I suppose. Um, talk about this and the movements and the people who sacrifice so much and kind of what's going on in our culture today. And that would be something very good to proactively do to figure out your part in all of this. Huge. But from 20, what was it? 1963 was the, uh, the speech. I have a dream speech to today. You wonder how much progress, you know, in the minds of a minority, how much progress has really been made. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's why we do see these these movements today that they're, they're looking and, and seeking to find the similar things and, and they're using the same same methods and I think it's about how it like Liz said it's changing we're using social media and we're they're continuing to make this movement to to better society like the shooting there was one shooting that was all social media and it got out so fast and then so in a way, it's a lot more immediate, but there still aren't answers. You know what I mean? They're all still lobbying. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement hit uh, on Hillary Clinton really hard to try to get her to create some – make that part of her campaign. And it, it it just doesn't seem like – I mean it happens. There's fast movement, but still there hasn't been a lot of change. You know what I mean? Yeah, I suppose that's then the difficulty that's faced there is it's very easy to communicate mm-hmm. massively um, just through social media, through Twitter and Facebook and everything. Also to reveal what may not have been, you know, broadcast in newscasts previously, which is also kind of shocking because all of a sudden you question what you're hearing yeah. from these trusted sources. But the question then is, what are you supposed to do? It's that, you know, what can I do initiative, which I think was um, mainly what King like symbolized was what he did. I mean, he was, he was an ordinary man and he right. did this amazing thing and he, but he didn't operate alone. He operated in a community of people. Yeah. And so maybe that's one of our first steps. And I think that's what black lives matter is also doing. Well, maybe that's the weird thing too, is you can get the exposure, but that doesn't create the community, right? So you got to, you got to get the feet out on the street and people mobilizing political campaigns and getting more people involved. Well, maybe that's what you guys could do this Monday. Yeah. That's let's get on that. Right away. <laughs> Kaylee's like, I'm sleeping in. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Please don't bother me. I'm sleeping in. Well, Liz and Kaylee, you did great. I've even got Kaylee's name right now. What she's been here a year now? Yep. <laughs> Good job. Kike. Kike. Kike Danes. And Liz Miller, uh, you guys are the best. Appreciate your enlightenment on the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day and why it all, why it is what it is. And folks, let's step up. Let's do, uh, let's do our part to at least understand what it's all about and not just make it a holiday for heaven's sakes. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, technology is changing a lot of things in our lives. Uh, if you think about it, from remote control cars, do you remember back in the day 
when you know your car could either go forward or backward, or you could, you know, the the cars that would run into the wall and then automatically change direction and then eventually find a straight path. Well, you know, now we have drones. We have uh, even in the UK there was just a story out recently about um, there's a there's a, a a race that they have regularly there um, a, to to design electric cars, right? All electric race cars, basically. Um, but now what they want to do is actually ditch the drivers. And uh, they want to have all electric cars that are fully autonomous. And, and the cars can then, I guess, race against each other. The new series is going to be called Robo Race. And it will run alongside the Formula E Race series, which began last year. And sees driverless cars competing against each other independently at speeds of up to 150 miles an hour. So imagine the day that you can now go watch like a NASCAR race. With driverless cars, electric cars that are basically robots racing robots. Hmm, times they are a changing. Now, with that though, uh, you know, we're eventually going to have roads, we're eventually going to have streets that are all driverless, or cars that are driverless, and you're just going to get in your car and drive to work. Won't that be great? Do you sense when that happens, we're going to need some laws? We've got to have some rules with some of this technology and the advancements we're going through. So we 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 found the exact same problem when it comes to drones and uh, the ethical use of drones in society. Um, you know, recreational drones have, have quickly become the latest trend. In fact, retailers estimate that one million drones. Now, a drone is basically a flying machine. In it could probably be an airplane or a helicopter. Um, but there's about 1 million drones that will be sold for Christmas this season. And with so many drones filling the air and with inexperienced pilots, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has plans to release rules and regulations. Uh, today joining us from the University of Utah, we have Dr. Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Lawson, who created Drones in Society, a curriculum at the University of Utah that aims to help students explore the ways that drones are being imagined and made real the course also discusses the moral, ethical, and legal issues brought on by drones technology, and they're on the phone with us live. Uh, Dr. Avery Holton, Dr. Sean Lawson, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You bet. Great to have you. I mean, this, to me, is such an interesting topic. In fact, last week we did a story about a woman that has to pay a $600 fine because a man was flying a drone, I guess, over her driveway, and it was coming at her. I don't know if you read the news report and she was terrified that she didn't know it was being controlled by somebody. She thought it was like an alien, whatever. And she threw a rock at it and destroyed his drone. <laughs> she has some pretty good aim, right? She's got some really good aim. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, I guess as we get into this, the drones, you know, a million are going to be sold this year. And I don't even think most of us even know all of the ethical issues or some of the ethical issues that come up when we're thinking of having a drone or a drone with a camera in our neighborhood. Talk to us about that. Dr. Avery, how did you get into this research, and, and why drones, of all things, that we need a class on? You know, I, I think that you made um, a really good point earlier, is that now drones, um, just like the autonomous cars that you were, you were mentioning, are becoming more ubiquitous, so we're seeing them everywhere. Um, gas stations, toy stores, but we're also seeing them covered in the media in different ways. So in the past, when we thought about drones, we thought about sort of these... Um, airstrike combat vehicles, and mm -hmm. now we're seeing them more as, as toys. And the problem that we ran up against or that, that we started to see to develop this course was 
nobody was really thinking about them in constructive ways. Um, it was all uh, kind of doomsday scenarios or surveillance issues. So we wanted to, to dive a little bit deeper and explore the ethical issues, explore the legal issues, but also kind of put the power in the hands of the students and, and let them tell us you know, the different ways that these could be used in a positive manner. That way we weren't just thinking about them as sort of seek and destroy right. or sort of the fly of your driveway and, and throw a rock up at <laughs> That's it. That's right. And yeah, and yeah, because you can already see the hoodlums are going to be out there, you know, creating havoc with the the seniors of the world, flying drones around them. Um, talk to us, Dr. Lawson, about the curriculum and because in, in the class, don't you also have the, the, the students build a drone? Yeah, we do. Um, so really what our goal was in the class is to really try to provide a, a unique um, sort of comprehensive um, look at drones. So um, it was actually a series of two courses over two semesters, so it was hmm. a year-long curriculum. And in the first semester, we really focused in on the legal, ethical, social issues uh, related both to military use of drones, so yeah. ethics, um, efficacy, do these things even work, or is it legal to use them, um, these sort of issues, um, use of drones by law enforcement, you know, those surveillance issues that Professor Holden mentioned, um, and then also the domestic issues around regulations, uh, FAA, which you mentioned earlier, safety issues, privacy issues. So we really did like a deep dive on that in the first semester. Hmm. Um, and during that semester, we, we started the students off with literally just some like toy grade drones that you could buy from Amazon. Um, each student got a drone. Um, they're pretty indestructible, and, uh, you know, they, they started learning to fly them around and get a sense for, um, you know, how these, quad, these little quadcopters work. And um, part of what all of them learned was um, they're actually not as easy to fly as uh, they look huh. on TV or in all the marketing materials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But that's an important thing for them to learn, right? right. Uh, a lot of people have the misconception that you can just go out and buy one of these things. They look like a toy. And in many in many respects they are, and then you can you know you can just start flying and be an expert at it right away, and that's when they get themselves into trouble. Um, so we started them off with those toys, and then then in the spring uh, we shifted gears, and what we did is we really uh, looked in detail at ongoing innovations, and each student um, worked to do an innovation profile of a particular individual or a company who is doing something innovative with drones, hmm. and they wrote up a report about that and put it on our website. And then what they also did is they each worked in teams of five to build a larger uh, quadcopter from a kit and, uh, and then to imagine an innovative use for quadcopters and sort of put together a mock uh, funding proposal um, that uh, lays out you know, their idea yeah. for some beneficial social use for this technology. Interesting. So it almost – in a way it sounds like a, almost like a marketing class or a, a, a PR or an advertising approach where you're kind of I mean you're innovating but you're also you're also trying to figure out solutions. Right, right. What we yeah, we really wanted to provide sort of like a three hundred and sixty degree, you know, view of what's going on yeah. with technology. In various different realms of society, the problems we're seeing with the technology, um, the other innovative and positive things that other that people are doing with the technology give them a little bit of hands-on experience so they, they know something about like how the technology works, like literally at the nuts and bolts level, and then also allow them to imagine and, and begin to articulate an argument for their own use of the hmm. technology, you know? Yeah. 
Dr. Dr. Holton, why uh, I have a master's degree in communications, actually a bachelor's from the U in communications, but I'm trying to figure out how the curriculum about drones, the ethical and safe use of drones, how is this in a communications field? I think it's a really good question. So we started to see sort of a proliferation of drone use by um, independent media. So folks who might be freelance journalists right. or even identify that way to, to get some really cool footage, let's say, of traffic zones or avalanches. Um, and some of those became problematic, you know, coverage of forest fires, for example, and getting in the way of uh, emergency responders. But from a communication perspective, you know, it's, it's interesting to research that and see uh, the motivations behind those uses. But from a broader perspective, when we attach a camera to anything, it suddenly becomes a media device. No, that's true, huh? Uh, so we can stream out video, we can share video on YouTube, um, we can create vines and GIFs and all those sorts of things. So we wanted to make sure that, one, students were armed with uh, constructive thought and, and deeper thought about those legal, moral, ethical issues if they start using these devices for communication. But two, we were really interested in, in exactly what your question was from the student's perspective is, well, how can these really be used mm. for communication? Do yeah. you imagine them being used as communication devices, or do you imagine them as something beyond it? And what we got was exactly what I think we expected was a really good mix of student ideas in terms of whether or not these should be media devices and then how else they might be used. And just to give you an example of, of what students came up with yeah. when they built these uh, the drones that Dr. Lawson was talking about, we had students come up with drones that would fly in grids to kill mosquitoes, to do mosquito control. Yeah. We had um, sort of agricultural devices for cattle GPS tracking, um, spraying crops, avalanche control, and even a few that, that just worked on uh, new forms of energy, so using the, the shake and rattle, so to speak, of the drone to create more battery life because part of the problem right now is most drones, the batteries go out in 6 to 12 minutes, so you don't have a lot of flight time. Right. But these students, you know, along the way basically informed us and, and talked to us about some of their worries and concerns, and most of them weren't necessarily concerned with the surveillance aspect. They were more concerned with whether or not the media has a right to fly these devices and where they have a right to fly them. And mainly the media. I mean, not even just the perverted neighbor that just is going to go look in your windows, but th their concern was the media. Right, and, and they ask good questions, right? So whether or not uh, the media could use these, you know, how far away they should operate, hmm. what the legalities were, and then what kind of footage could and could not be used. And I think we had it a really uh, a good sense of that yesterday with the unfortunate shooting yeah. in California. We saw um, not not a, necessarily a drone-based uh, footage, but some helicopter-based footage that showed the shootout. And in those cases, you know, the, the helicopter pilot and reporter are putting themselves in danger. Um, they're trying to fly, you know, high enough to not, uh, not uh, interfere with law enforcement. But drones in that situation could be used not only for law enforcement to sort of fly in and, and look at the vehicle um, where the suspects were, but also for media to be at a safer distance, uh, to be providing that sort of footage, and to have footage that uh, could either be streamed, such was the case yesterday, or that could be edited on maybe a, a five or ten second delay. Wow, um, I, I mean, really, stuff that we don't even we don't even really conceptualize. Is that what you saw, Doctor Lawson? Too, just all of, I mean, the potential interesting solutions that come from the class. To me, that's fantastic. I mean, that, that's showing you maybe that the innovation of drones could, could change a lot of our, our lives um, for the good. 
but also it seems like it's it's creating a lot of questions too, maybe more questions than than even answers. Right, and and so part of what we were really trying to to do with the class is based on the the belief uh, that you know you're going to get better, more responsible innovations um, if. Uh, the students who are, are thinking about these innovations have had some education about what the bigger issues are mm-hmm. in terms of surveillance and ethics and privacy and safety um, and all of these kinds of issues that they're going to understand um, the sort of you know ethical, legal, political landscape, social landscape in which they're attempting to innovate with this technology. And that's going to make them more responsible, but we think probably more effective innovators as well, right? Because they're not going to be surprised when they create a technology, put it out in the world, and then right. have a huge backlash. And they're, and they're thinking to themselves, well, why are people backlashing against this technology? Yeah, no, um, exactly. Um, and then, but then the other thing is, you know, even if, even if all of these students don't go on to be drone innovators, which probably, you know, most of them probably won't. They have other career paths in life. Um, they will be more informed citizens about drones, the issues around drones. They will have had some hands-on experience with the actual technology. Um, so we think, you know, everybody is better served, both the, the innovators and citizens and potential future policymakers, um, if, you know, all, all parties involved can have a little bit of experience with all sides of the issue, yeah. from the hands-on innovation side to the sort of policy, social, legal, et cetera, um, side of these issues. Um, that will have a better public policy discourse, you know, that sort of avoids the, the hype um, and also the, the fear that comes oh. with a new technology. Yeah. And if you go too far in either direction, you know, it's really not a productive discussion. And so we were really hoping to, you know, sort of get to that. And I think we did. We had some amazing discussions with these students, incredibly bright. Um, you know, they really cared about these legal and ethical and social issues and also really cared about the innovation and, um, you know, they, they worked hard to um, integrate all of that knowledge yeah. uh, into what they were doing. Powerful. Let, let's do this, guys. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Uh, Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Lawson from the University of Utah Department of Communication. They're helping us uh, understand a course that they put together on the ethics and safety um, and ethical use of drones. But uh, they're also teaching us about the innovative concepts behind drone use and uh, maybe trying to inform us so that we can be informed instead of just afraid of new technology. Let's actually, uh, let's just educate ourselves, find out more about it. Stick with us. We'll be back. Continue the discussion about ethical use of drones, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever been to the park and seen someone flying a drone? Or have you ever been to the White House and had a drone land on the front lawn? (laughs) And then Secret Service just freaks out. We're talking about uh, ethical use of drones, and who better to do it than two professors that wrote the curriculum on on drones and uh, basically took their classes through two different um, courses, uh, one that got into the deep ethical kind of legal regulations, you know, side of 
of drone use, including building one. And then they, they got into other issues about the media, what happens when you attach a camera to a drone and how that changes the game. Their names are Dr. Uh, Avery Holton and Dr. Sean Larson. Uh, Dr. Holton is an assistant professor of humanity and humanities scholar in the Department of Communications at the University of Utah. Dr. Sean Lawson is also an associate professor of communication at the University of Utah. So we welcome both of you here. Thanks again for coming back with us. Hey, great. Thanks for being for having us. Now, tell me this. Um, so I, I have a friend. So I'm going to couch it that way. I have a friend that uh, they make a lot of really big YouTube videos that are really popular that get tens of millions of views, and they use a lot of drones. And um, I, these people also, you know, do real estate videos with drones, and they fly the drones around the houses for real estate or businesses for real estate. It's it is a it's it's a cutting edge industry that um that really can make you some good money and yet th- that was something that 10 years ago was never really thought of right so you you're you're on the cutting edge of technology that also includes serious possible harm if you're not careful but also the government regulations the FAA needs to be involved they're thinking about reg- having registering of the of the drones um, where do you see this going? Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Lawson. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the FAA is currently working on, um, you know, getting their, their plan uh, together for, um, you know, some rules for integrating drones into the national airspace. They um, have released a draft of those rules um, this last year. Um, so they're, they're behind schedule on that. Um, so we're still waiting on, you know, the final rule. It was open for uh, notice and comment. Um, that period has closed, and um, now we're waiting for them to, you know, come out with uh, their their final rule um, for what that's going to look like. Um, in the meantime, they've attempted to put together some rules, as you mentioned, for uh, registering drones. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I think that's the next immediate. Um, Battle. Um, they're saying they want to try to have those rules out by December the 20th, oh, wow. uh, time for Christmas. Yeah. Um, I, I personally think it's um, very unlikely that they will uh, be out in time. Um, they're still very early in the sort of regular uh, rulemaking process. Um, normally they would have a lot of steps left to go through. And on average, it, it, it takes about two and a half years to get a rule <laughs> through the process right. that trying to go through. Um, so there's a lot of questions about whether or not they're actually going to get it done by December the 20th. Um, there's speculation that they might try to invoke their sort of emergency uh, safety powers that they have mm-hmm. to sort of short-circuit the normal uh, rulemaking process to get it done sooner. Um, but that's almost certain to trigger, um, you know, lawsuits. Um, and, and, and probably there's Probably rightly so. I mean, there's some good reasons why, sure. um, you know, they probably um, are not legally allowed to sort of skip the process at this point. Um, so it's going to remain contentious, it's, and it's also going to remain, because of the, the ongoing ambiguity, it, it, you know, it's going to remain contentious, um, I think, for the foreseeable future. Do they, do they call you guys? I mean, somebody's about to make rules and I know they're well-informed. I mean, I know everybody's lobbying, I'm sure, the FAA on this. But in the end, it seems like 
a couple of professors that have held classes where for hours students that are creative have been looking at every angle of drones. It seems like you have a lot of information that would be very, very valuable to this process. Um, yeah, we haven't been consulted uh, on the on the rulemaking process for the FAA. Um, uh, we we were involved at at one point um, in some you know, meetings, uh, you know, with the uh, I think it's like the Utah Film Commission, mm. um, you know, uh, with some meetings that they were having, uh, talking about like what um, you know what they could do, what the state could start doing to um, you know help out um, you know film producers and. Uh, Movie folks, you know, because that's a big that's a big thing in Utah. Yeah. Um, who might want to use drones in their work, and so they they put together a, a group of people that were sort of exploring those issues at one point. Um, but again, it's really hard for anyone at a state level or or elsewhere to to really make a lot of progress and know what they can and can't do at this point without a final sort of rule from the FAA. Hmm. Um, but you know, they did bring in a lot of really good people uh, and organizations to be a part of. Um, uh, the group of people that they put together for the the registration plan. Um, so you know it's 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 good people who are well intentioned. They're trying to do the best thing. You know, not they're trying to reach consensus on uh, the best kind of policy that they can come up with. I mean, I think there's still a lot of flaws in what that what they have proposed to do with the registration uh, process, the registration rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I think it will probably be challenged, um, if for no other reason than that. Pretty much everything in life seems to trigger a lawsuit these days. <laughs> That's right. Um, Why not? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they, you know, we do have to give them credit where, you know, they really are trying to deal with a really very new technology. It's a very new situation that we're in, and it's difficult to make yeah. to make these rules. And so I think they are coming from a good place in terms of their intentions, and they're they're trying to do the right thing. Is now we we know Amazon. They're you know they're on a a course to be offering drones that would deliver packages. I know Google also wants to get involved with that. If they came to you guys um, and your students, what – maybe give us two or three pieces of advice. Uh, Sean, maybe what what would you tell them to, to to watch out for just from what you've learned from your students and your class on the ethical use of drones? And, and Avery, you'd be uh, thinking of some ideas as well. What would we be telling Google – what should uh, Amazon be watching out for, and maybe even just the citizenry when we're thinking about this this new technology? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think at this point, uh, you know, uh, one thing I would tell uh, these companies is I, I think I think the the legal side of things is probably going to get worked out. Um, you know, I think they have probably some decent pull with the FAA in terms of you know, lobbying um, and and getting a legal framework and a situation in the future where they're going to be able to use this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the bigger thing they probably need to worry about is going to be uh, public perception of the technology yeah. and potential backlash against seeing these things flying around their neighborhoods um, and the fear that that can cause in terms of privacy in terms of safety concerns. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say that that would be one thing I would advise companies that are getting into the use of drones um, to be to be really cautious about. Even if you can, uh, you know, get a legal situation where the FAA is not going to come after you, you could very well get backlash from people. Right. Yeah, they now, need to be educated, right, and, and not throw rocks at it. Right, right. And, yeah, and on the side of, you know, the citizenry, 
um, you know, I understand people's concerns, uh, safety concerns and privacy concerns. At, at the same time, though, um, I think there has been a little bit of overhyping of the fear uh, around the technology. And so I would, you know, caution people to just sort of take a deep breath and uh, take a step back. Hmm. If you see a drone flying over your yard, you actually don't have the right to shoot it down or <laughs> throw rocks at it. Um, you can call the police. You know, it's potentially a privacy, uh, yeah. you know, or potentially a trespass issue that you could uh, file a charge about. But um, what you can't do is just start shooting or uh, <laughs> destroying things. Right. Um, you know, that would be the same as if, um, you know, somebody drove their car into your driveway and you didn't give them permission. You don't just get to start shooting them. Or throwing rocks, right? Or throwing rocks at them because <laughs> they came on your property. It, you know, it's the same thing uh, with a drone. It might just be little Timmy next door who lost right. his drone. <laughs> And it likely probably is. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest and say when I uh, first got um, some some toy-grade drones a couple years ago for Christmas, I took them out and started flying them and uh, learned what our students later learned, uh, which is that they're not that easy to fly. Yeah, these are wily. Very quickly uh, crashed one on my neighbor's roof and had to go and knock on his door and say, yeah, can I go on your roof with a ladder to get my drone? And, you know, luckily he was very nice about it. Did he look so, at you like, aren't you a professor? Right, right. He's like, you're you're an adult. Why are you flying uh, toy robots around the neighborhood? Uh, yeah, so. That's good stuff. <laughs> hey, uh, Dr. Holton, what would you what would you be consulting or counseling these, these companies and just the citizenry to, to think about, you know, when it comes to drones? Right. I just to follow up on what Dr. Lawson said, avoiding the fear hype I think is, is really key. And uh, the media hasn't really helped us out with that. I'm, I'm sure. The, the, the stories that have been done, but also some of the commercials we see, the car commercial where the drones are swarming and kind of chasing everybody. <laughs> but uh, one thing that, that the companies have talked about doing that I think is really smart, and, and some of the drone companies are in on this too, is finding better ways to signify what the purpose of a drone is, either by color or by flashing lights. That way, if, if you do see a drone flying over your yard, um, you're a little bit m- better equipped to identify what its purpose mm, is. That's is a great idea. Is it a package? Is it there uh, to do harm? You know, those is there a camera on board? I mean, that might be fa- – I mean, that would be really easy. If it's flashing green, that might mean camera or whatever, and then you can worry. Right, and, and some of the, the proposed systems for uh, deliverables actually have, you know, identifiable grid patterns too where – uh, you would be in a zone that you know drones are flying in. Okay. You'd be able to see drones that aren't flying erratically. But just being able to, to help the public identify sort of the good from the bad, yeah. uh, I, I think is a really big help for these companies, and I'm glad to see that they're doing it proactively. Mm. I think that's great. I mean, if it's an ISIS drone, it ought to fly the ISIS flag. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm not sure that, the, that they would agree with you that, <laughs> yeah. that they'll do that. Flag. No, but legally they should. <laughs> right. They, legally they should do that. You know, one one thing to point out, too, uh, with the millions of drones that are expected to be sold or the, the 1.2 million this Christmas, is that the majority of those, like Dr. Lawson said, will wind up uh, just being crashed in a house, <laughs> crashed near a tree, or, or crashed on a roof. Yeah, floating down the gutter. Right, and, and not really tinkered with again because they are so difficult to fly. But those that do remain airborne and, and those folks who are conscientious about flying them um, are in on these kinds of conversations. Right. How to, how to better signify themselves from the general public so that uh, folks aren't afraid when they when they see them flying overhead. I love it. And I, and I think I really I laud your work because a lot of people aren't this, you know, advanced in at least trying to even educate and inform people. So 
That's why I, I had to get you on here. Again, um, we appreciate you both uh, being with us. Dr. Avery Holton, Dr. Sean Lawson from the University of Utah Department of Communication. We appreciate both of you and your great work. And again, we're going to try to do what we can to avoid the fear hype. As a media source, we're going to downplay the fear. Hey, it's just, I mean, there's dangers, but you know what? The people that are flying the the really advanced tools and these advanced drones, they're they're serious. They're taking it serious. And uh, we, we all, I think, we all can be... We all can be a lot more informed, a lot less reactive about it. Let's get proactive and figure out how these things can also benefit our lives. Anyway, interesting stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Interesting stuff. We always like to end with a hero story. Here's the hero of the day. Happens to be uh, the friendly neighbors in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A three-year-old Molly may have missed her birthday and Halloween, but she wasn't about to lose out on the candy. Molly had to stay in the hospital for 28 days after getting pneumonia. But once she was released, the only thing on her mind was Halloween, right? So once that's in your head, you got to get out there and go trick-or-treating. All it took was a simple Facebook post, and within 15 minutes, there were 60, 60 houses of friends and neighbors all willing to host a trick-or-treater for one more night. Mother Stephanie Strait says Molly was stuck in bed and had a little energy while she was sick, but now that spunk she uh, was missing has found its way back. The little Rapunzel went out from house to house, picking up all the candy she almost missed out on. Some of the people even put out decorations and wore costumes to play along. How cool is that? The entire neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, take care of one little girl, cute little Molly. Uh, you know, Molly needed her. She needed her holiday. That truly is, when you think about it, the spirit of of all of the holidays, really, is the spirit of giving, the spirit of serving and uh, and truly, the, the joy that any of us can feel in serving anyone but uh, a little three-year-old dressed like Rapunzel. That's the show, my friends. Again, we can't do it without you. We're here every day to give you the tools, Monday through Friday, to, to live better, to live longer, love stronger, healthier, and, and grow. And to really, you know, connect with what's good in the world. We'll be back again Monday with more ideas, more tools right here. You can find us again on iTunes, on TuneIn. We're everywhere. You can go to byuradio.org to download the show. Take care of each other. Look after one another and uh, make it a great one.